Hello and welcome to this episode of Flirtation's Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas, metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. We're continuing our story of Vicki Barr, flight stewardess, and the story is The Clue of the Golden Coin. We are at Chapter 8. Mr. Quail. Come in, Miss Barr. The FBI agent greeted Vicki with a tired smile and offered her a chair. He looked as though he hadn't had too many hours of restful sleep during the past few nights. I had a talk with your young friend, Watson, yesterday. I suppose that's why you're here, Vicky nodded. It was wise of you to have the lad come and see me. I certainly agree that Mr. Duke's proposal to him was was a most unusual one. As soon as the boy left, I tried to contact Mr. Duke, but discovered that he was in Cuba and was expected back today. Yes, I know, Vicky said. Mr. Quayle looked at her sharply for a moment, then went on. However, I did make some discreet inquiries about him. It appears he is in the import-export business, engaged in trades, engaged in trade between the United States and Cuba. So far as I can tell, his trading is thoroughly respectable and legitimate, being principal being being principally concerned with sugar, with sugar, although he also deals in laces, perfumes, 
antiques, and other luxury items, and legitimate, being, principal, being, being principally concerned with sugar, with sugar, although he also deals in laces, perfumes, antiques, and other luxury items. He stroked his stubble on his square jaw, knowing here at the airport, since a great many of his shipments come in by Air Express and Air Freight. The FBI investigator grinned and reflectively stroked his stubble on his square jaw. You remarked a moment ago that you knew Mr. Duke had been in Cuba. Do I gather you have been doing some sleuthing on your own? A few things worried me, Vicky said seriously, and I didn't want to bother you with them until I had a little more to go on. The other day, she paused and then started over again. You may remember when I, when you questioned our crew the other day, I mentioned an old man on the flight who seemed to be having a particular manner. At the time, you didn't attach much importance to it. Mr. Quayle nodded his head slowly as he thought back over the Friday meeting. Uh-huh, he said. Well, Vicky went on, I saw him again today. As Vicky told her story, the FBI agent listened in attentive silence. Vicky repeated her experience after she had served his lunch and how she had found the travel folder the travel folder that seemed to direct her to the Granda restaurant in Opera City. She told the story in more detail than after she had served his lunch and how she had found the travel folder the travel folder that seemed to direct her to the Granda restaurant in Opera City. She told the story in more detail than she had on Friday, so that Mr. Quayle could get all the background that led up to her present vague suspicions and feeling of unrest. Then she told about then she told about hearing overhearing Ramon's Duke's conversation with Joy Watson in the sack in the snack bar and her surprise when Duke directed the taxi driver to take him to the same restaurant that was named on the travel folder. Mr. Terrell left in his seat. And so this afternoon, after the pirate on an old smoke-blackened pipe, barber pipe, nodding now and then, and muttering, yes, yes, uh-huh, I see. Vicky went on with her story. She told about seeing Mr. Eaton Smith again at his office, of seeing Ramon Duke at the Granda, and nodding now and then, and muttering, yes, yes, uh-huh, I see. Vicky went on with her story. She told about seeing Mr. Eaton Smith again at his office, of seeing Ramon Duke at the Granda, and finally of finding old Mr. Troyle apparently working as an errand boy for Duke. He seemed frightened, half to death, Mr. Quayle, she continued. He clutched my hand like a little boy and kept saying, I have to talk to you. I don't know what it all adds up to, if anything, but I can't help having a strange feeling about it. Why was he flying to Florida on a luxury plane? Why didn't he come by bus, or at least on an economy coach flight? That's an interesting question, Mr. Kale agreed. Maybe I'm imagining things, Mr. Quill, but it was... Why was he flying to Florida on a luxury plane? Why didn't he come by bus, or at least on an economy coach flight? That's an interesting question, Mr. Kale agreed. Maybe I'm imagining things, Mr. Quill. But it was Ramon Du who made that strange proposition to Joey. It was Joey's flashlight that was found at the scene of the robbery. It was old Mr. Terrell who was trying to direct me to Ubar City. 
and who I found today at Ramon Duke's house, so scared that he could hardly talk. All of these odd coincidences somehow seem to tie together. Anyway, I thought it was time to talk to you. You are a very wise young lady, Miss Barr, Quail said, knocking the ashes out of his pipe onto the tray on his desk, and you're a good detective, too. You have some good instincts and good hunches. He got up from his chair. Let's keep this meeting a secret between you and me. You've given me some ideas I'm going to look into. Meanwhile, continue to keep your eyes open, and don't hesitate to come straight to me with any other notions that may occur to you. He smiled, his quiet, friendly smile. As I said, you're a pretty good detective. Curiously enough, Vicky was back in Ubar City, that night having dinner with the Curtins. This time they were in a restaurant called the Spanish Park. It was very much like the Garanda, Vicky thought, with archways, tiled floor and walls, potted palms and tinkering fountains. Dinner, for, dinner began with an assortment of fruits and spicy Spanish bean soup called Sopa de Garbanzo, and Mr. Mr. Curtin told her that this soup was a, speci- was a speciality in Ubar City and that it was served free at the street booths all during festival week. She remembered seeing the soup booths on the sidewalk that afternoon. The dinner continued with the Cuban bread baked in a banana leaf, the chicken cooked with yellow rice, and a whole assortment of spicy vegetables. It was topped off by coconut ice cream served in a coconut shell. As she ate, Vicky looked around at the people in the restaurants. They seemed to represent about the same cross-section of American and Spanish-American she had seen in Granda that that afternoon. A small orchestra played soft soft Spanish music. It had a violinist, but he was a short, fat man wearing Spanish clothing. She wondered what Mr. Terrell was doing. Then she shook these thoughts out of her head. She had told her suspicions to the FBI. That was all she That was all she could do at the moment. Mr. Curtin was telling a joke, and she joined in the laughter. When they left the restaurant, the air of Ubar City was full of the pirate festival. A peddler offered a tray of souvenirs Vicky had seen that afternoon. Small pirate ships, pistols, cutlasses, and pirate figurines, all made of bright copper gold metal. Mr. Mr. Curtin brought one of each, for little Ed Ernest, the boy next door, he explained, You will be back in Tampa for the Torchlight Parade on Thursday night, won't you, Vicky? Louise asked. I certainly will, Vicky replied. From your description of it, I wouldn't miss it for the world. As they were driving home through as they were driving home through streets crowded with merrymakers, Vicky asked, Have there been any developments in the gold coin mystery, Mr. Curtin? Louise's father shook his head. The FBI hasn't had a single clue to go on. It's as if though some ancient alchemist reversed himself and muttered, Chapter 9, Skull and Crossbones Heavy storms carrying snow, hail, fog, and winds of gale proportions had swirled down out of the northwest and enveloped the entire Atlantic. Chapter 9, Skull and Crossbones Heavy storms carrying snow, hail, fog, and winds of gale proportions had swirled down out of the northwest and enveloped the entire Atlantic seaboard from the Carolinas northwards 
in the worst weather of the year. All flights out of New York had been canceled for 24 hours, and so now it was Thursday afternoon instead of Wednesday when Captain March touched down touched down the tricycle landing gears of the big DC-6B on the concrete strip in Tampa Airport. The usually calm and placid air had been as rough and as rolling as a rolling sea, even as the plane's normal over-the-weather altitude for the first two hours of the flight, and since the ship was packed to capacity due to yesterday's cancellations, Vicky and Kathy had their hands full. But here over Florida's west coast, the sun shone brightly. The blue waters of Tampa Bay caught a billion sunbeams and threw them back up into the sky like little showers of tiny diamonds. Below, the palm trees fluttered their long fawns in the lazy breeze. It had been just a week ago today, Vicky remembered that their ship had carried the cargo of gold coins that had seemed to vanish so mysteriously into thin air. She wondered if Mr. Quayle had acted on the information she had given him after her adventures in Ubar City, or if there had been any new developments of any kind in the mystery for tonight's big event. It was late by the time she arrived at the Curtin's home. Mrs. Tucker, the housekeeper, met her at the door. We heard about the bad weather in New York on the radio, Mrs. Tucker said, and we weren't sure for tonight's big event. It was late by the time she arrived at the Curtin's home. Mrs. Tucker, the housekeeper, met her at the door. We heard about the bad weather in New York on the radio, Mrs. Tucker said, and we weren't sure whether you were going to make it today or not. The girls went on ahead to take their places on the float for the parade. They said to tell you to meet them for dinner uh, for dinner, about 8 o'clock at the Spanish Park. The restaurant, you, the restaurant you all went to the other night. Vicky saw that Mrs. Tucker was carrying a light coat over her arm, as though she had been, just been out to go out. The housekeeper added, Is there anything I can do for you, Miss Vicky, before I leave? She smiled half apologetically, as though a woman of her age and dignity should be aloof from such galas going on. I thought I'd go and see the parade myself. You go right ahead, Vicky said cheerfully. Don't worry about me. Maybe I'll see you in Uwar City. She hurried upstairs to her room. She might not look much like a Spanish senorita, but at least the bright crimson red dress was a gesture. When her taxi set down, when her taxi set her down on the edge of the Latin Quarter, she might not look much like a Spanish senorita, but at least the bright crimson red dress was a gesture. When her taxi set down, when her taxi set her down on the edge of the Latin Quarter, the old streets, with their archways extending out over the sidewalks, were teeming with people. Some wore the light-colored sport clothes that marked them as tourists and sightseers. Most of the men and women, and practically all the children of whom hundreds were running around laughing and shouting, were in costume. Some were dressed in Spanish clothes, others wore pirate outfits. Music poured from loudspeakers all over the sidewalks and from distant bands. Vicky supposed the unseen bands must be on floats which were perform which were probably forming up somewhere out of sight for the parade. At the curb, the free bean soup stands were doing a lively business. Red rose, germanium, and variety of other brilliant flowers spilled out of the windows 
and strewed the sidewalks. Some of the younger people were dancing in the streets. Several groups were singing. Some people were already finding places along the street and craning their necks to catch a glimpse of the coming parade. A happy spirit of the carnival had Ubar City in its grasp, and Vicky joined in the laughter as she allowed herself to be carried along to be carried along the human tide of the huge crowd. She stopped at, she stopped at one sidewalk shop to buy a souvenir for her young sister Ginny. She chose one of the miniature imitation gold pirate ships that seemed to be the festival's most popular souvenir and slipped it into her handbag. She paused again to buy a red rose from an old woman who was sewing flowers under an arcade. As she slipped it into her hair, two boys with a guitar stopped and serenaded her with a rhythmic, with a few rhythmic chords. Vicky couldn't control the impulse to whirl gaily around in a Spanish dance step. She wound up against an iron grillwork gate and paused to catch her breath. She looked up and a familiar sign caught her eye. F.R. Eaton Smith Travel Agency. Underneath it was a hastily lettered cardboard place card. Welcome to the Gasparilla Festival. Open house refreshments. Inside the house was a blaze of light. People were going in and out in a steady pa- in a steady parade. On impulse, Vicky walked up to the three steps to the entryway to enter the hall. At a long table against one wall, two senoritas were serving cake and fruit punch. Vicky accepted a cake from the tray and a glass of punch. Is Mr. Eaton Smith around? Vicky asked one of the serving girls. She thought it would be polite and in the spirit of the evening to thank her host for his hospitality. The girls laughed gaily and waved a hand aimlessly in the direction of several rooms that led off the center of the hall. He's around somewhere, anywhere. What a wonderful old house, Vicky thought as she looked around. It must be at least a hundred years old, maybe more. The broad doorways were hung with a very brocade drapes and huge oil paintings so dark with age that she could hardly make out the subject matter decorated the halls, decorated the walls. She wandered aimlessly into the next room. At the doorway, she stepped aside to avoid a man and woman who were coming out. As she did so, her toe stuck at an object on the floor, which was half hidden behind an ornate screen. It was a violin case, stuffed and battered and gray with age. There seemed to be something vaguely familiar about it. Then suddenly she remembered that the case that Mr. Terrell had carried so lovingly on the plane. She looked at it more closely. Yes, the leather had worn away on the handle to expose a metal clasp in the same way the old man's case had been worn when she sat beside him in the plane. She bent down and lifted the leg gently. Inside was a fiddle that appeared to be as old and time-worn as the case. She looked for the initials or some identifying mark on the ins- on the shelves of a long-built tin cabinet that lined one wall were dozens of little metal ships and swords and pirate figures that were being hawked by peddlers all over the city. Or were these on the shelves of a long-built tin cabinet that lined one wall were dozens of little metal ships and swords and pirate figures that were being hawked by peddlers all over the city? Or were these real works of art and Mr. Eaton was and Mr. Eaton a collector? 
She picked up one of the ships and took it. She picked up one of the ships to look at it more closely. No, it was just like the one she had bought a few moments ago for Ginny. Just a cheap little gold-colored metal figure. Odd, though, that Mr. Eaton Smith should have so many of them. Maybe he gave them to prospective customers to advise to advertise the pirate festival. Strolling casually around the room, admiring the paintings and the antique Spanish furniture, she came precisely to a door that opened into a dimly lighted room, not much larger than the storage closet. Three men stood aside, talking in low half-whispers. Facing her was Mr. F.R. Mr. F.R. Eaton Smith, looking as dignified as usual in the polished rimless glasses that gave his eyes such a shiny, shiny look. His face was slightly averted as he talked earnestly with a tall, dark-haired man who was dressed in a bullfighter's costume. A third man, stocky and heavy-set, stood on his back, stood with his back to the door. He was wrapped in a heavy black coat and wore a big pirate hat. Vicky could see that he was wearing a black mask over his eyes. This she involuntarily gasped. At the sound, Mr. Eaton Smith looked up and looked a look of surprise on his face. Who's there? he said sharply and stepped towards the door. The airline stewardess, he exclaimed. She involuntarily gasped. At the sound, Mr. Eaton Smith looked up and looked a look of surprise on his face. Who's there? he said sharply and stepped towards the door. The airline stewardess, he exclaimed. Miss Barr. Hello, Mr. Eaton Smith, Vicky said, hoping that her voice didn't sound as nervous as she felt. I was just looking for you to pay my respects. So I see, the travel agent said coldly, staring at her intently through his shiny spectacles. Raymond Duke stepped forward and made her a slight bow and brought out a broad white tooth smile gleaming in his dark face. Ah, the lovely lady of the restaurant. Welcome to our festival. The third man had seemed to stiffen at Mr. Eaton Smith's mention of her name. He remained frozen in his tracks, his broad back turned to the doorway. There are some refreshments in the hallway, Miss Barr, Eaton Smith said. Please enjoy yourself. Will you join? I will join you in a moment. Vicky turned away, relieved to be free of the awkward situation, but a hundred thoughts tumbling over and over in her head. Wild confusion. Each one seemed to cry out for recognition. So there was some sort of connection between Duke and Eaton Smith. She had found old Mr. Terrell half-frightened out of his wits leaving Duke's house. He had cried, I have to talk to you, and now the old man's violin case in Ethan Smith's house. She was sure of that now. If Mr. Terrell was also working with, as Ethan Smith's errand boy, was he as frightened of him as he had been a Duke? And did all these things have any bearing on Duke's strange position to, proposition to Joy? And to the fact that Joey had been the only suspect up to now, at least so far as she knew, of the theft of the pirate gold? And who was the third man who had stood with his back to her? There was something familiar about that spooky figure. She had obviously, she had obviously surprised them while they were talking about something they didn't want to be overheard. If not, why Mr. Eaton Smith? If not, why Mr. Eaton Smith? brusque manner after his politeness of the other day 
and the open hospitality of his house tonight. All these thoughts flashed through Vicky's mind. In a, room, in a short time, it took her to walk across the room. As she was entering the hallway, a heavy black figure brushed past her, bullied its way through the people who had entered in response to Mr. Ethan Smith's welcome sign, and bolted through the door into the streets. As he flashed past her, Vicky caught a glimpse of the white skull and crossbones design on the front of his hat. He might be a key to the mystery. She had to find out. She started after him. Chapter 10. The Torchlight Parade And the streets outside had suddenly grown dark, with the last brilliant red rays of the settling sun bathing the housetops to the west in a crimson glow. Chapter 10. The Torchlight Parade And the streets outside had suddenly grown dark, with the last brilliant red rays of the settling sun bathing the housetops to the west in a crimson glow. The crowds in the street had become even heavier and noisier, and down at the end of the block, Vicky heard the blurring bands and saw the bobbing flames of the torches as the parade went by. She looked around frantically. How was she ever going to spot one man in this mad, confused throng? Then, down the block, moving in the direction of the parade, she saw a stocky figure with his black costume standing out in the sea of so many colorful costumes. He was pushing his way ruthlessly through the mass of people that jammed the street. She ran after him, stumbling and bumping into people, sometimes nearly falling over, falling, but never letting the broad black figure out of her sight. Then the man came to the corner at an intersection of the cross street along with the noisy, colorful parade was passing. He slipped into the happy crowd of marchers and was lost to sight. She turned her head to look back over her shoulder. The tall figure of Raymond Duke, with the shiny bullfighter cap perched gently on his head, was moving rapidly in her direction. With a little gasp, Vicky ran into the passing line of marchers, and then she too was swallowed up by the parade. Now she was carried along with, by the merry-making marchers, like a chip of wood in a swift stream. Some groups were parading six or eight abreast, with clasped hands forming a barricade through which she could not pass. She dodged around them, squeezed between others marching couples, squirmed and twisted, and tried to forge ahead through the slowly moving column. Now, if she could keep track of the man she was after by his black cloak, by his black cloak Raven Duke would be, have no trouble seeing her, blonde hair in sight. At the moment, the moving line... If she could keep track of the man she was after by his black cloak, by his black cloak, Raven Duke would be, have no trouble seeing her, blonde hair in sight. At the moment, the moving line of marchers, at the moment, the moving line of marchers ground to a slow stop, just ahead a float standing as its driver waited for the parade to move again. Looking up at the float, she saw Louise Curtin wearing a white silk dress and black lace, and a black lace mantilla over her dark hair, sitting on the throne of red and white flowers and waving to the people below her. Louise, Louise, it's me, Vicky, right here below you. Startled, Louise looked all around and then finally saw Vicky's upturned face and waved and shouted a greeting. Louise, your mantilla, may I please have it? May I? May I have it, please? Louise didn't seem to understand. 
My mantilla? Oh, please, Louise. Vicky reached up, pleadingly. I need your mantilla. Quick, Louise. Oh, please. Louise's eyes widened at the urgency in Vicky's voice and the expression on her face. She whipped the lace from her head and handed it down to Vicky's waiting fingers. Vicky quickly strapped it around her bright blonde hair, her bright blonde hair, and looked again desperately for the man in the black coat. He was nowhere in sight, and her heart sank. But then, far up ahead, she caught sight of him and elbowed her way through the stalled crowd, drawing angry glances from people that she pushed rudely aside. She clutched the mantilla tightly around her throat as she ran, stumbled forward. No need to worry about Raymond Duke following her now. With the red dress and black head covering, she looked like any of these thousand other girls in the great crowd. Once she... Once she saw the masked man turn hurriedly around and peer in her direction, did he see her with an identifying blonde hair covered up? She didn't think so. If only she could manage to move faster. One thing she was pretty sure of, he would stay in the parade. The heavy mass of costumers walking, the heavy mass of costumes would be his best protective cover. Walking up one of the side streets by himself, he would be much too conspicuous. Then, once again, she caught sight of Duke's tall figure. He was peering all around, but under the protection of her black mantilla, she felt safe. She turned She turned her head away and plunged on. She didn't dare look back again, lest Duke accidentally spotted her face. Her breath was coming in painful gasps now, but she fought her way on, never taking her eyes off the pirate's black cape and black hat. Then, half a block ahead of her, the moving parade seemed to be widening out, losing its marching form, and the marchers spreading out and milling around in aimless circles like thin streams of water that had suddenly flowed into a round, cup-like pool. The, float ahead, the floats ahead of her stopped, some of them pulling out a line. Obviously, this was the end of the route. The parade was breaking up. The black-clad figure was forever lost in the surging eddy of human figures. Vicky found herself pushed up against an iron fence that surrounded a statue. She clung to it while she caught her breath. All around her, groups of people went off, went off arm in arm. Musicians from bands strode by carrying their instruments under their arms or occasionally pausing to blow a wild note in sheer exuberance. Vicky felt lost, discouraged, and alone. Then she took stock of the situation she was in and reflected on the wild chase of the last half hour. Supposing she had cut up with the black road pirate, suppose he had suddenly stopped and confronted her, what would she have said? Would she have pulled the mask from his face? As she was thus lost in thought, a cheerful voice behind her said, Vicky. She turned around. It was Louise. Hi there, Vicky. How do you like our Gasparilla parade? Vicky managed a grin. I wouldn't want to be in one every day. She, I wouldn't want to be in one every day. She took a black, the black lace from her head. Thanks for your use of mantilla. Louise frowned and she took the shawl. Back there a while ago, you asked me for this. You seemed well, almost desperate. Was anything wrong, Vic? I guess maybe my face was showing my excitement. Vicky laughed, passing the incident off, off lightly. I guess I forgot. I guess I sort of fell out of place without a costume. 
I don't blame you, Louise said, forgetting the incident. Now let's go join Daddy and Nina at the Spanish park. The meal was a happy one. Louise and Nina laughed and talked about the parade, and Mr. Curtin told funny stories about the antics of the members of the Ye Mystic crew. Vicky joined in the Vicky joined in the party, but her mind was far away seeing the frightened old violinist in front of Duke's house. Duke, Eaton Smith, and the masked pirate whispering in the little room startled startled at her appearance, the pirate running away from her in the crowd, finally Duke appearing to follow her. You're very quiet this evening, Vicky, Mr. Curtin remarked on the drive home. She's tired, Louise said. Don't forget she had a long trip down from New York today. When they arrived at the house, Mrs. Tucker was there before them. A messenger just delivered this for you, Miss Vicky, she said, handing over a large envelope. Vicky took the envelope and continued on her way to her room to wash up. Inside the room, she opened the flap and pulled out the contents. They consisted of a skull and crossbone insignia, crudely cut from the front of a cardboard pirate hat like the one the masked man had been wearing tonight, and a crudely pencil. Chapter 10, The French Sand Vicky had a restless night. This was unusual, because her healthy young body ordinarily enabled her to drop off into a restful slumber almost as soon as she turned off the light. But last night she had been disturbed. Vicky had a restless night. This was unusual, because her healthy young body ordinarily enabled her to drop off into a restful slumber almost as soon as she turned off the light. But last night she had been disturbed by a fitful dream of a big old of big old houses with murky rooms, ghostly pirate figures chasing her, and strange creatures lurking in wait for her around dark corners. The face of old Mr. Terrell floated through her dreams, frightened and pleading, and that of Raymond Duke with his leering white toothed smile. Once she woke up and lay awake for a long time, thinking about the skull and crossbones and the threatening note. It couldn't be a prank. She was obviously getting close to something, and those involved were trying to scare her off. It could be nobody else but the masked pirate, Raymond Duke, and she was sure of it, Mr. Eaton Smith. Although she had surprised him in his home last night, it never crossed her mind that the mild-mannered travel agent might be mixed up in any kind of shady dealings. The note also implied that one of the three knew a great deal more about her than she had suspected, significantly where she was staying in Tampa. She didn't think Mr. Duke, she didn't think Duke or Eaton Smith could possibly have found out during the short time between the parade and her return with the curtains, maybe the third man, then the pirate. She got up and dressed early and was having orange juice and coffee by herself in the dining room when Louise and Nina came downstairs. Well, well, Nina laughed. We thought you were the late sleeper in the, of the household. Was the excitement of last night too much for you? You don't know the half of it, Vicky thought to herself, but she smiled and said, I never had so much fun in my life. Then getting some, then get ready for some more fun, Louise said. I believe you said your vacation starts today. Change your plans, Vicky told her. I didn't have a chance to mention it last night. I'm going to take one more. I'm going to make one more trip. Leave here tomorrow. Return on Sunday. Then I have a whole week to soak up that Florida sun and get the tan Nina was teasing me about.
Wonderful. That fits right into the plan. What plan is this? Vicky wanted to know. Louise eyes twinkled. Daddy's promised us all a trip to Havana. He says that after the festival week, he needs a rest. And he's sure we do too. He had planned for us to fly over on Monday so we can get there from here in a couple of hours. Then we'll be spending two or three days seeing the sights, shopping in their wonderful markets for laces, jewelry, laces, jewelry. They have the most wonderful combs and brooches and things made of tortoise shells and coral, Nina interrupted excitedly. And taking in some shows at the nightclubs, Louise went on, and just having a high old time. That sounds perfectly wonderful, Vicky said enthusiastically. I've never been to Havana, and it's one place I've always wanted to visit. Then get yourself ready, Vicky. We have, we'll have the time of our lives. After breakfast, Nina excused herself to go to the shop. She did have a job, she assured Vicky with a big smile, even though she managed to find plenty of time to enjoy herself. And since today and tomorrow are the last two days of the festival, we'll probably be swamped with tourist business. I have to go down... I have to go down to the welfare agency this morning, Louise said, getting up. Can you find plenty to do by yourself, Vicky? Don't worry about me, Vicky assured her. I have some shopping to do my shopping to do to get myself ready for Havana. After the girls departed, Vicky telephoned Mr. Quayle's office and made an appointment to see him in half an hour. The taxi going to the airport she fell. In the taxi going to the airport, she fell to wondering about the identity of the third man, the mess pirate in the black coat. He had known that she was staying at the curtains. The only people in Tampa who knew that were Mr. Quayle, the Federal Airlines personnel. Could the pirate be connected in some way to the airline? Well, she decided the riddle was too much for her now, but she was going to do her best to find the answer. When she entered the FBI investigator's office, I'm sorry, Miss Barr, she said. You had no longer, you had no sooner hung up than Mr. Quill called to say that he was detained. I told him about your call, and he asked if you could see him at ten. I'm sorry, Miss Barr, she said. You had no longer, you had no sooner hung up than Mr. Quill called to say that he was detained. I told him about your call, and he asked if you could see him at ten. She looked at her. Isn't that sort of a busy? Man's holiday, Miss Barr? Vicky strode through the terminal waiting strode through the terminal waiting room, then decided to go outside and stand in the sun. She still couldn't get over the one isn't that sort of a busy man's holiday, Miss Barr? Vicky strode through the terminal waiting strode through the terminal waiting room, then decided to go outside and stand in the sun. She still couldn't get over the wonderful fragrance of the perfume laid in Florton air. She couldn't seem to get enough of it. I guess I'm just a hick from Illinois, she chided her irrepresentable Joey Watson, his usual broad grin splitting his freckled face. What are you doing out of uniform? Aren't you flying today? I'm like an old-fashioned fire, fire horse who can't resist irrepresentable Joey Watson, his usual broad grin splitting his freckled face. What are you doing out of uniform? Aren't you flying today? I'm like an old-fashioned fire, fire horse who can't resist the sound of alarm bells, Vicky smiled. Only in my case, it's the sound of airplane motors. I know what you mean, Joey said. I feel the same way. He fell into a step beside her. 
Look, Steve. Look, Steve is taking me up for lessons in a few minutes. Taking me up for lessons in a few minutes. Have you got time to come over and take a look at this ship? It's peachy. It's a peachy two-engine beach. Are you sure? The field people won't mind. Of course not, Joyce said. He opened the heavy wired gate that led onto the concrete apron. Come on. Steve Miller was standing at the steps that led to the little cabin of the char- of his charter plane. He wore a light brown sack of garbaline fl- garbaline flying jacket. He wheeled around and smiled broadly when he saw Vicky approaching at Joey's side. Oh, hello, Miss Barr, he said. Do you come to take me up on that spin? Not this morning, Steve, Vicky said. I've got things to do, but I... But I may some other day real soon. You do that, Vicky, Miss Barr. It may seem like a lot of airplane to be giving our young friend his first flying lessons in, but she handles just like an automobile. I know, Vicky said. I've flown in beaches before. Good deal, Steve said. It may seem like a lot of airplane to be giving our young friend his first flying lessons in, but she handles just like an automobile. I know, Vicky said. I've flown in beaches before. Good deal, Steve said. Just at that moment, a blonde-haired young man strode toward them from a twin-engine Cessna that was parked farther up the concrete apron. He gave Steve a military he gave Steve a semi-military salute and said hello. Come over here, Roy. Steve called out. I want you to meet a friend of mine. The blonde young pilot looked at Vicky. As he said, I'm, I've met your student, Steve, but this is Miss Vicky Barr, Steve told him, licensed pilot and federal airline hostess. Vicky, this is Roy Olson. He's a charter pilot out of St. Pete. He comes over the bay occasionally to take the bread, to take the bread out for our mouths. Roy Olson grinned. Don't you believe it, Miss Barr? I just fly over here now and then to help relieve the load on the Tampa boys. He had an infectious grin, and Vicky liked him immediately. I hate to break this up, Steve Miller said, but if I'm going to give Joy a lesson before the warehouse bosses start yelling at him, yelling for him, we better take off. He climbed into the cabin and went forward to the cockpit. Come on, kid, he said over his shoulder. Strap yourself in, and don't touch that wheel until I tell you to. Joey touched his thumb to his forefinger in the time-honored airman salute to Vicky and followed Steve into his plane. Vicky watched as they taxied out onto the runway and getting the go-ahead from the traffic tower took off. I'll see you again, Mr. Olson, she said to the flyer from St. Petersburg. Again, the young man grinned and said, Good deal. Mr. Quill, Vicky asked after she... Mr. Quill, Vicky asked, after she had told the latest of her adventure, do you think I'm seeing Boogeyman in the closet? John Quill had listened attentively as Vicky recounted her experience of last night, the visit to Eaton Smith's house, her discovery of the violin case, her unexpected stumbling upon the tourist agent, Duke, and the third man whispering together in the darkened room. Duke's whispered, don't let her go yet, keep her here. The masked man's flight, her chase after him, Duke's pursuit of her in the costume crowd, receiving the threatening note on her return home. No, Miss Duke, no, Miss Vicky Barr, John Quill said seriously as he puffed. 
on his old pipe. I don't think you're seeing Boogeyman at all. I think you're teaching me a valuable lesson that they forgot to include in the FBI training course. Never underestimate the feminine point of view. He blew a thick blue smoke ring that drifted lazily toward the ceiling and started out with an old cold. I started out with the cold hard fact that a shipment of gold coins had been stolen in some mysterious way. You, on the other hand, started out with the warm human fact that an old man was unhappy, a young boy seemed he- headed for trouble. I concentrated on trying to find the thieves. You concentrated on trying to help the old man and the boy. He paused again and smiled. Does this sound like a lecture? Why no, sir, Vic, he said politely. Well, it should sound like one, because it is. A lecture to myself. He picked up the telephone. Now, if you'll excuse me, I think I have to take a little closer look at a certain import at a certain importer and a certain travel agent. Vicky got up from her chair. And one thing, John Quayle said, the next time you see something that doesn't feel right to your woman's intuition, come and tell me about it. Vicky took an airport bus back to Tampa and got off in Midtown. Her head was spinning as she tried to puzzle out the tangled events of the past week and put them together in some logical order. But the sun was too bright and the air was too sweet and clean from gloomy thoughts. Her mind leaped ahead from the fun she'd be having in Havana. She sauntered along the streets aimlessly, looking into the shop windows. She stopped in front of an art supply store and was casually examining some of the pictures that were on display when a familiar figure inside the shop caught her eye. It was the old violinist, Mr. Terrell. She entered the store just as the man was saying to the clerk in his quavering voice, and five pounds of French sand, please. I'm afraid you've almost bought us out of French sand these past few days, sir, the clerk said. Not very much demand for it here, but we should have some left. I'll go see. He turned to go. Vicky looked around the store. Mr. Terrell seemed to be alone. This was her chance to talk with him. She walked up to the counter and said, Why, hello, Mr. Terrell. At the sound of her voice, the old man turned, and his smile broke a smile broke over his lined face. Why, why, it's Miss Barr. You were in such a hurry the last time we met that I didn't have much of an opportunity to say hello. She remembered the old man's frantic plea. I have to talk to you. If you really did have something important to tell her, now was the time to draw it out. Mr. Duke said that you were working for him. He seems like a pleasant man. At the mention of Duke's name, the old man's eyes again took on a frightened look. He nodded his head, and for a second, his eyes fell. Yeah, yes. Do you also work for Eaton Smith? Vicky asked casually, as he had on the street. As he had on the street of Lubar, the old man grasped her hand and stammered, Miss Barr, I feel that you are my friend, the only friend I have. His eyes were pleading in his ashened face. At that moment, the clerk reappeared with Mr. Terrell's package. The old man fumbled nervously in his pocket to get the money to pay for it. So the old man really is in trouble, Vicky thought. But how could he possibly be connected to Duke and Eaton Smith and the man in the pirate cloak? Mr. Terrell, did you leave a message in the plane In the plane that day for me? A travel folder? Yes, and you found it. For a second, his eyes lost their frightened look. Miss Barr, I need help. I have to talk to you. 
Then let's find a quiet place to talk, Vicky said soothingly. No, no, not now. He looked fervously out into the street. Mr. Duke is waiting for me, in his car down at the corner. The old man lowered his voice to a whisper. When do you fly again to New York, Miss Barr? Tomorrow, Vicky answered, surprised at this question. Tomorrow at 3.45. Federal Flight 17. I'll be on that plane, Miss Barr, Terrell's voice. Chapter 12. The Disappearance. Promptly at 3 o'clock, Vicky entered the airport terminal building. From a payphone, she had put in a call for Mr. Quill's office upstairs. He had asked Chapter 12, The Disappearance. Promptly at 3 o'clock, Vicky entered the airport terminal building. From a payphone, she had put in a call for Mr. Quill's office upstairs. He had asked her to report anything to him that didn't feel right to her. Her meeting with Mr. Terrell yesterday certainly qualified as not feeling right. She had tried to call him yesterday, but had been unable to reach him. But once again, the FBI man wasn't in his office. His secretary thought he'd be back shortly. Vicky went to the reservations desk to look at the passenger list for Flight 17. There was his name, all right, Amos Terrell. So the old man had made it. Before this day was over, Vicky thought to herself, she ought to have the answers to do a lot of troubling questions. Vicky thought to herself she ought to have the answers to a lot of troubling questions. She looked around. The old man was nowhere in sight. Has Mr. Terrell checked in? She asked the clerk at the desk. The girl looked down her list. Why, yes, he was in over an hour ago to validate his ticket. She looked at her watch. About one thirty. Then he must be somewhere around, Vicky knew, possibly in the snack bar. She had plenty of time, so she sauntered toward the restaurant. There was no sign of the old man at the counter or at any of the tables, but Captain March was sitting on one end of the stools, hastily gulping a cup of coffee. Vicky, he said, you're just in time to do me a favor. I can't find my best pair of pigskin gloves, and I think I may have lost one of them somewhere in the terminal. I have to rush to the weather briefing, so be a good girl and see if you might be able to might be at if they might be at lost and found you know you'll know them by the Abercrombie label Vicky walked across the big waiting room Vicky walked across the big waiting room casting her glance around for Mr. Terrell but he was nowhere to be seen at the lost and found desk the boy in charge grinned when she asked about the captain's gloves these were turned in Thursday he said reaching under the counter and coming up with a new pair of pigskin gloves. These the ones? She looked at the gloves. Vicky's eyes caught sight of an object lying on the lower shelf behind the boy. What's that? she asked sharply, pointing. That? The violin case. The boy turned and picked it up. One of the porters found this old fiddle about an hour ago. Is it yours, miss? Vicky looked at the worn leather case with the frayed handle and exposed metal of the clasp. It was Mr. Terrell's, no doubt, of that. But it bore the fresh scratches, and there was a dent in the side as if someone had stepped on it. Where was it found? Vicky's voice took on a strident note as a dark, a dark wave of dread swept over her. Outside somewhere. The porter didn't say. Just where? Vicky turned and ran up the stairs to Mr. Quayle's office on the second floor. When she burst through the door, the secretary looked up and shook her head. He hasn't come back yet, Miss Barr, and I really don't know when he'll be in. Is there anything I can do for you? 
May I leave a note? Certainly. You'll find paper on the desk over there. Fakia hastily scribbled a message, telling the FBI investigator about her meeting with Atmos Terrell yesterday, his checking in at the reservation desk, and her finding the battered violin case that appeared to show marks of a struggle. She folded the note and gave it to the secretary, then went down the stairs with a heavy heart. Twenty minutes later, when the passenger boarded the plane, she looked in vain for Mr. Terrell among them, but when the last of them had come aboard, the gr- Chapter 13, Havana. When Vicky arrived back in Tampa the next day, she went directly to John Quayle's office to see if he had any news of Atmos Terrell. The office was closed. She Chapter 13, Havana. When Vicky arrived back in Tampa the next day, she went directly to John Quayle's office to see if he had any news of Atmos Terrell. The office was closed. She found a taxi and drove to the curtains. Nina and Louise were in a flurry of packing for their Havana trip, trying to decide which dresses they would need for the various things they planned to do. They both burst into a torrent of excited babble when Vicky entered the room. Look, Vic, which evening dress do you think looks better, the green or the white? Just look at this lovely new bathing suit I bought at the shop today. You'd better start your own packing, Vic. Daddy plans on leaving bright and early in the morning. Vicky had to smile at their enthusiasm, but her pleasure in the projected trip to Cuba was dampened by her worry of what happened to elderly Mr. Terrell. Wait until I change, she said, then I'll help you pack, and you can help me. In her room, Vicky threw her bags under the bed and took the telephone book from the table. It hadn't occurred to her to wonder whether Mr. Quayle lived in Tampa. If he didn't, she'd have to ask Mr. Curtin where she could find him. It, he'd certainly he'd certainly know, but she didn't want to worry him with her own involvement in the case, unless she had to. She was in luck. John Quill's name was in the book. She dialed his number and waited. In the moment, his familiar voice answered the phone. Mr. Quayle, this is Vicky Barr. I hope you don't mind me calling you at home like this on a, su- on a Sunday afternoon, but I was worried about Mr. Terrell. Did you find anything about him? I'm sorry, Miss Barr, the voice on the other end of the phone said. As soon as I got your note yesterday, I put one of my men on the job of tracking him down, but so far no luck. We found that he had been living in a cheap boarding house in the quarter, but his landlady apparently hasn't seen him since yesterday. Oh dear, Vicky said. Don't worry, Miss Barr. I'll let you know as soon as I hear something. I won't be home for a few days, Miss Quayle. The curtains are taking me to Havana, but if I can be of any help by staying. Now see here, young lady, you just go on to Havana and enjoy yourself. The FBI will find him. Don't worry. Vicky thanked him and started to hang out. Then she thought of something else. Did you find out anything about Mr. Duke and Eaton, Mr. Eaton Smith? It appears they are both out of town. Gone, Vicky? Almost shouted the word. Maybe they forced Mr. Terrell to go with him. Maybe they... Mr. Quayle's good-natured laugh came over the wire. Better not jump to conclusions, Miss Parr. Mr. Duke told some... Mr. Duke told some friends that he was going out of town on business. He didn't say where. And Mr. Eaton Smith said that he had flown to Nassau. Nassau. We're making a check, of course on the basis of the reports you made to me, but you have to remember that both men are respected 
businessmen here in Tampa, and that the nature of their business compels them to travel a good deal. We can't barge in with charges we have no way of proving. But again, don't worry. If they've done anything unlawful, we'll find out. Now you run along to Havana and have a good time. Vicky thanked him and hung up. Early the next morning, Mr. Curtin and the girls boarded the... Early the next morning, Mr. Curtin and the girls boarded a Federal Airlines plane for Havana. It was fun, she thought, as she leaned back in the reclining seat to travel as a passenger. Both the stewardess on the flight were old friends with whom she had flown many times. They made a point of waiting on her with a mock pomp and ceremony and referred to her as sometimes and referred to her sometimes two and three times in one sentence as madame. Is madame comfortable? Would madame care for one or two lumps of sugar in madame's coffee? Is madame sure she won't get airsick? Has madame ever flown before? Nina and Louise giggled at the jokes and played up to it. Everyone was having fun. This Vicky, this Vicky thought, is a way a vacation should be. All the fears and uncertainties that had crowded her mind for the past week vanished like magic. The plane landed briefly at Miami and then took off again for a short hop over the Keys and across the blue streets of Florida to Havana. They checked into a luxurious hotel surrounded by vast green lawns and towering palm trees. Then quickly they unpacked their clothes and set out to see the sights. For the next two days, Mr. Kern escorted the three girls on a whirlwind round of fun and good time and good times. He knew the old city thoroughly, but for Vicky and the Curtin girls, it was a round of wonderful discoveries. They went to the racetrack, the beaches, the historic old forts, and the fascinating museums during the morning and afternoons and the evenings. Fandangos. On the third morning, or maybe it was the fourth, Vicky had lost track of time in the wonderful world of Havana. Mr. Kern said at breakfast, Today we're going to see something that you've never seen. Fandangos. On the third morning, or maybe it was the fourth, Vicky had lost track of time in the wonderful world of Havana. Mr. Kern said at breakfast, Today we're going to see something that you've never seen before. A real Spanish-American market place down in the old city. What's so special about it? Nina asked. Some people call it the thieves' market, Mr. Curtin explained. In the old days, the pirates and the freebooters the freebooters, all went there to sell the loot they had taken from captured ships. Even today, it's a place where stolen goods are sold. Oh, Nina said, a thieves' market. I can't wait to buy something. Not so fast, Missy, Mr. Curtin laughed. I said we're going to look and not to buy. It's still a crime to receive stolen goods. But if it's all right to, for the thieves to sell things, Nina persisted, it should be all right for me to buy some, to buy them. Not on your life. The authorities down here occasionally shut one eye to certain practices that help make a tourist attraction. But I don't. Then I'll, then I'll do it. When you're not looking, Nina teased. And you're not too big to be spanked if I catch you. The girls giggled at this exchange. And then Mr. Kern went on. Seriously, though. This market is a strange combination of fine legitimate shops and black market operation operators. What's what say we go out to Varedo Beach this morning for a swim, then take in the markets this afternoon? 
The Thieves' Market was a cobblestone square with an ancient stone fountain in the middle and shops and outdoor cafes on all four sides. A few men, a few men, most of them dressed in nondescript clothes, lounged in the doorways. Two or three small parties of American tourists in a soiled seeker suit, seer sucker suit, and a Panama hat that had seen better days sauntered up to the table. From his coat pocket, he extracted a bottle of perfume in a soiled seeker suit, seer sucker suit, and a Panama hat that had seen better days sauntered up to the table. From his coat pocket, he extracted a bottle of perfume that Vicky recognized as a famous French brand. For the young ladies, the man said in a broken English, five dollars. Vicky knew the perfume cost three times that in New York or Tampa. Mr. Kern pretended to think it over. Then he handed a bottle, the bottle back to the man and shook his head. The peddler returned the bottle to his coat pocket and walked away as casually as he approached. In a few moments, a second man strode up to the table, an old suitcase in his hand. Without a word, he put the case on the tabletop, opened it. Inside, there was some of the most beautiful lace Vicky had ever seen. She couldn't repress an exclamation of admiration. Ah, the man said, revealing broken yellow teeth and a wide grin. The senorita knows fine lace. Direct from Spain, senor. A great bargain. Again, Mr. Kern pretended to be trying to make up his mind. And again, he shook his head no. My goodness, Daddy Louise exclaimed when the man had gone. That was the dreamiest lace I've ever saw in my life. Can't we buy just one tiny little piece? It would... It would look so wonderful with my new white evening dress. What do you say, Daddy? Mr. Kern laughed. I'm going to have to spank you too. That's stolen goods, honey. We just we just look for fun. But that's all. A third man detached himself from my doorway and headed in the direction. Here comes another one, he said. You must look like a rich American, Daddy. When the man revealed the object... When the man revealed the object he had for sale, everyone gasped. It was one of the tiny souvenir ships from the Gasparilla Festival in Tampa, but instead of being cheap brass, this one gleamed like pure gold. Mr. Curtin's eyes flashed. Where did you get this? The man smiled and shrugged his shoulders. Solid gold, senor. I sell cheap. Solid gold, Vicky repeated incredulously. See, si, senorita, solid gold. Mr. Curtin laughed. We're from Tampa, fellow. We could buy all those. We could buy all those we wanted last week for a quarter. I must say you've done a nice polishing job. Well, go on and find yourself another sucker. He waved to the man away. Well, girls, he said, have you seen enough? I'd like to buy something for our mother and Ginny before I leave, Vicky said. But certainly I wouldn't want to buy stolen goods. As I told you this morning, Vicky, Mr. Curtin said. This market is a curious mixture of thieves and smugglers and honest men. Just across the square is Manuel Rodriguez's jewelry shop. He specializes in Spanish antiques, and he's a thoroughly respectable. Maybe we can find something there. Mr. Curtin paid for their, lime for their limeades, and they strode across the cobbled square. Manuel Rodriguez's jewelry shop was completely unlike the thieves' market that existed just outside its windows. The interior was plain and dignified, and glass display cases along its walls held beautiful pieces of finery of finely wrought silver and gold. A small man wearing a trimmed swallowtail coat 
and pince-nezed stepped out to greet them. Senor, senorita, he said, rubbing his hands together as though he was washing them in the air. What may I do for you? We're just looking around, Mr. Curtin explained. Please do, the little man said. If there's anything I can do, he smiled and shrugged. The girls browsed among the display cases. Nina kept up running, chattering of O's and ahs. Look here, Vicky, Louise called from the cr- from across the shop. Come and see this necklace. It really is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. As Vicky stepped to her side, she pointed out a huge emerald, the size and shape of a bluebird's egg, suspended on woven cords of spun gold. But it was not the emerald that made Vicky gasp with astonishment when she looked into the case. It was the heavy gold chain in the trade table beside it. Hung on one end of the short gold cane was a large gold coin. It was an exact duplicate of the stolen coins that had been, that had been pictured in the Tampa newspaper. Then there was the profile of the queen wearing the high crown, the laurel wreath that encircled the head, and the ring of star stars around the rim. Vicky was sure of it. Then she remembered the picture she had torn from the newspaper. She put her handbag onto the on top of the case and began to explore its contents. Finally, she found the clipping under a pile of loose change, bobby pins, lipstick, nail file, and all the other assorted odds and ends with which girls clutter up their handbags. She unfolded the piece of paper and compared the picture with the coin in the display case. There was no question about it. It was the same coin. Vicky, Louise exclaimed, What in the world are you doing? Look at the coin on the heavy chain, Louise. Isn't that the same as the one that's in this picture? Louise looked at the coin in the case, then studied the newspaper's clipping. Why, yes, she gasped. It it certainly is. Boy, did you... Shh, shh, Vicky cautioned. This li- the little jeweler had come up behind them. Yes, he said expectantly. Vicky pointed to the gold, to the coin and chain. Can you tell me the price of that piece, sir? The senorita has a good eye for antiques, the jeweler said. But I'm afraid that this particular piece is not for sale. Vicky raised her eyebrows. Not for sale? I regret to say it's not. We made the chain to order to accommodate the brought it to us. He tapped his pince nose with a fat finger. But wait, senorita. But wait, senor Garcia is an importer and sometimes deals in antiques. It is possible that he has... He tapped his pince-nose with a fat finger. But wait, senorita. But wait, senor Garcia is an importer and sometimes deals in antiques. It is possible that he has other such coins. Could you give me his address? Certainly, senorita, the the jeweler talked as he wrote a name and address on a piece of paper. It is quite possible that El Duque has something interesting. Vicky's heart leaped into her throat for a moment. Vicky's heart leaped into her throat and for a moment almost choked her. Did you say El Duque? Si, senorita, the jeweler said, giving her the piece of paper. Among his friends in in Habana, Senor Garcia is known affectionately as El Duque. El Duque, the Duke, Vicky's head was spinning. I wonder if Mr. Garcia, El Duque, is the same man we met in the hotel last night. Louise, you remember 
He said he was an importer too. Why, I don't remember meeting, Louise began. Vicky cut her short. Is Mr. Garcia a short man? She asked the jeweler. Not quite as tall as you, with a bald head and a goatee. The jeweler laughed. It is plain that you did not meet El Duque, senorita. Senor Garcia is quite tall, thin, a dark-haired, and small mustache. No, that was not El Duque. Suddenly, all the crazy notions that had been spinning around inside Vicky's head, like the flashing colors of a kaleidoscope wheel, exploded into a great sunburst of light, and little bits and pieces settled into places into place and put themselves together like the piece of a jigsaw puzzle. The stolen gold coins. This coin is on display. The coin in this display case certainly was one of them. The jeweler's description of Raymond Garcia fitted Raymond Duke to a T. Raymond was Raymond in Spanish, and El Duque was the Duke. El Duque was the Duke. Raymond Duke had an import business with offices in both Tampa and Havana. She remembered Mr. Curtin saying on the morning that the theft of the gold coins had been discovered. The thieves could never sell the antique coins. It was gold itself they wanted. She remembered the row of souvenirs ships on the shelves of Ethan Smith's house. She remembered what French sand was. It was used by metal casters to make molds. The ship, the ship the peddlers had tried to sell them a few minutes ago, it really had been solid gold. It all sounded too crazy to make sense. She didn't quite see how all the pieces fitted together, but deep down in her bones, she knew they did. That little ship that the peddler had offered them was made of gold melted down from the coins that had been stolen from Flight 17. She had to get that gold ship. Mr. Curtin, she said, her voice was so urgent that it tremored. Please come outside. Mr. Curtin looked at her puzzled, then saw the expression on her face and followed her out the door. Vicky, he said anxiously, are you ill? Mr. Curtin, the man who offered us that Tampa souvenir, he said. It was solid gold, Vicky stammered, not quite sure how to explain the confused thoughts that were still spinning around in her head. Yes, Miss Curtin said. Yes, Mr. Curtin said. Of course it was just a fake. Mr. Curtin, Vicky blurted out, I've got to buy that ship. Will you lend me the money and and help me find that man? But but I don't understand, Mr. Curtin said. Please trust me, Mr. Curtin. Please believe me. It's important. I just have to have that gold ship. Mr. Curtin didn't understand, but he was conscious of the desperate urgency in Vicky's eyes and her voice. And in her voice, he, he knew she was a level-headed girl, not someone to be carried on by foolish notions. He had found that had found that out during the short time she had been his daughter's house guest. Just a minute, he said, and turned back into the shop. Louise said, Louise, he said, Nina, you girls stay right here. Vicky and I will be back in a moment. But Daddy, look, Nina, Mr. Curtin said sternly, I haven't time to explain. Please stay here. It's important. Then he went outside and joined Vicky again. Vicky was looking wildly around the thieves' market. The man who had offered them the gold ship was not in sight. Let's walk around, Mr. Curtin said. He's bound to be in the square someplace. The man they, they saw the man who had tried to sell them the perfume, and then the grinning, broken-toothed character who showed them the lace. But of the peddler with the gold ship, there was no sign. They walked around for ten minutes, peering into every doorway. 
but still with no success. Then Vicky saw a familiar figure emerge from a doorway at the far end of the square. There he is, Mr. Curtin. Stop him. Mr. Curtin raised his arms and waved urgently. Hey there, he yelled, somewhat undignified for a strand American businessman. Stop. Wait a minute. The man glanced over his shoulder, then ducked into an alley and disappeared. Oh no, Vicky groaned. Come on, Vicky, Mr. Curtin said and broke into a run. Vicky followed at his heels. They came to the alley, but there was no one in sight. At its end, at its end was a small restaurant with dirty, fly-speckled windows. Vicky peered inside. The man was hurrying through the back door into what must be the kitchen. I'll get him, Mr. Curtin said, and stepped inside. Looking through the dirty glass of the window, Vicky saw Mr. Curtin speaking earnestly to the man behind the counter. The man listened and turned and spoke through the doorway. And then, to Vicky's vast relief, the peddler appeared. Mr. Curtin spoke to him briefly, and the two came outside. The Cuban looked. The Cuban took the little gold ship from his pocket, and Vicky breathed a thankful sigh. Where did you get this? Mr. Curtin asked, as he had done with the man who had first approached them in the square. Again, the man shrugged. All right, Mr. Curtin said. Never mind. How much? Solid gold, the man repeated. One hundred dollars. Mr. Curtin took the ship from the man's outstretched hand, and passed it over to Vicky. It was so unexpectedly heavy that she almost let it drop. She looked at it carefully and gleamed with the rich luster of pure gold. More than ever, Vicky was convinced that her crazy notion was right. Please buy it, Mr. Curtin. Fifty dollars, Mr. Curtin said. The Cuban shook his head. Eighty-five. Seventy-five, Mr. Curtin said. And that's my last offer. The man shrugged. You drive a hard bargain, senor. He held at his hand. Seventy-five. Mr. Curtin counted the bills from his wallet, and the man turned and disappeared into the shabby restaurant. Oh, thank you, Mr. Curtin. I give you a check as soon as we get back to the hotel. Now, young lady, Mr. Curtin said, maybe you will explain what all this is about. I'll explain later, Mr. Curtin. Please trust me. But where can we go to find out if this is really solid gold? The jeweler, Mr. Curtin said. In the shop where we left the girls, they retraced their steps to the shop of Manuel Rodriguez. Nina and Louise were still in the shop. They both looked at Vicky and their father curiously. When she saw the little ship in Vicky's hand, Louise gasped. The gold ship, Vicky. What in the world? I'll explain later, she promised. Then she handed the ship to Mr. Curtin, who in turn gave it to the fat little jeweler. I just bought this, he said. I wish to know what it is made of. I will gladly pay your usual fee. The jeweler looked at the ship closely. Are you interested in the figurine as an object of art, sir, or in the gold it might contain? Mr. Mr. Curtin looked at Vicky inquiringly. In the gold, sir, Vicky said. Very well. The exterior is obviously is gold. The weight seems to be right. Whether under the surface it is made of lead or some other base metal, we can tell only by boring into it. It will take only a few minutes. He bowed slightly to excuse himself and disappeared behind a heavy curtain into the back of the shop. Both Nina and Louise were bursting with curiosity. Vicky, Louise said, if you don't tell us what is the mystery, if you don't tell us what all this mystery is about, I will never speak to you again. Neither will I, Nina said. At the hotel, Vicky said, I'll tell you everything when we get back but not a word until then. In a moment, the jeweler returned. His face was 
Rest in, wreathed in a smile. Senor, he said, I'm happy to tell you that this is a piece of solid gold. Very valuable. Now, Miss Mystery Girl, Mr. Curtin said when they were once more in the suit at the hotel, can you tell us what this is all about? Vicky's mind was still in a whirl. Now she was sure she had had the secret. Vicky's mind was still in a whirl. Now she was sure she had the secret of the stolen gold coins. She didn't know how they were. She didn't know how they had been stolen or by whom, but she was pretty sure she just knew what had happened to them. Nina, Vicky began, I want you and Louise to promise me, cross your heart and hope to die, that you won't breathe a word of this to anyone. If you do, all of us may be in terrible danger. Nina's mouth popped open, and she started first at Louise, and then back to Vicky. Nina talks a lot, Mr. Kern smiled. That's her nature, but she can keep quiet when she has to. Isn't that right, honey? Both Nina and Louise nodded in silence, open-mouthed, in silent, open-mouthed agreement. All right, Vicky said. I'll start at the beginning. She told her story in detail, from the time she had first noticed the sick old man on the plane, straight through her adventures on the night of the torchlight parade, and the mysterious disappearance of old Mr. Terrell at the airport. She explained about her relationship with Joy Watson and her report to John Quayle. She took the newspaper clipping from her handbag. Then I saw that gold coin this afternoon in the jewelry shop, and it is the one right here. She gave the paper to Mr. Curtin. Then the jeweler's description of Raymond Garcia. Remember he called him El Duque? Couldn't that have been... Couldn't have been that anyone but Raymond Duke? And they remembered the little Gasparilla ship the man had tried to sell him by saying it was solid gold, and all of a sudden, all the pieces of the puzzle fell into place. It was you, Mr. Curtin, who suggested that the thieves didn't want the gold coins themselves, but because they were too hard to dispose of. But the gold they contained, if the gold figure the man offered us in a thieves' market today had been anything but a copy of the Ubar City souvenirs, I probably would have never suspected anything. But since it was, I knew there must be some connection with Tampa. Mr. Kern laughed. The way you wormed that description of Raymond Garcia out of the man in the jewelry shop would have done credit to Sherlock Holmes. Vicky's eyes sparkled. Where do you think I got the idea? What I don't understand, Louise said, is how the peddlers in the thieves' market got the gold ship model. Surely the people who took the coins wouldn't plan to dispose of the, go- of the gold by offering it to American tourists in ridiculously low prices. That, Mr. Curtin said seriously, is something that I'm sure the FBI... Chapter 14. The Third Man John Quayle met their plane at the Tampa airport the next morning. He took the little gold ship that Vicky had been carrying in her handbag. Better not let this go through customs, he said. We don't want anybody to... John and Quayle met their plane at the Tampa airport the next morning. He took the little gold ship that Vicky had been carrying in her handbag. Better not let this go through customs, he said. We don't want anybody, to, anybody, even the customs people, to know about it at this stage. If you will come with me, Miss Barr, I'm sure your friends won't mind taking care of your luggage. When the two of them were alone in the, his office, Mr. Quayle looked at Vicky for a long moment with a big smile on his face. The last time you were here, Miss Barr, 
I said that you were a good detective. Now I want to repeat it. Doubled. Of course you were lucky, too. When the peddlers offered to sell you the gold ship, and when you saw the coin in the jewel sh jeweler's shop, but a good detective is one who is smart enough to take advantage and will soon know all about those two. A dozen questions popped into Vicky's mind, but she contained her curiosity and let the FBI man go on. We found and will soon know all about those two. A dozen questions popped into Vicky's mind, but she contained her curiosity and let the FBI man go on. We found, we found out all about Raymond Duke and his business connections in Havana as Ramon Garcia, his real name, by the way. Most of those old-fashioned Spanish houses had their kitchens in the basement with big brick ovens for baking bread built into the walls, but the oven in Eaton Smith's house was extra special. It had been lined with a modern... Most of those old-fashioned Spanish houses had their kitchens in the basement with big brick ovens for baking bread built into the walls, but the oven in Eaton Smith's house was extra special. It had been lined with a modern fire brick fitted... A modern fire brick fitted with high-intensity gas burners and converted into a kiln. It was the, this kiln that the gold coins were melted down and recast in the form of souvenir ships. We found a handful of antique coins that had been overlooked in the thieves' haste to get the job done, and they have been identified. We also found all the metal casting equipment, including the molds that had been made from cheap souvenirs. Needless to say, we didn't find Eaton Smith. He too had flown the coop. And poor old Mr. Terrell. He just couldn't have been one of the gang. Did you find him? Well, we haven't, we haven't yet found him, but we did find out all about him. He was an expert goldsmith. And, at the words goldsmith, Vicky gasped. Then he was one of the thieves. It didn't seem, it didn't seem possible. Until a few years ago, was regularly employed, Mr. Quill went on. Then apparently his health broke down, and he couldn't hold a regular job. Our New York people went to work investigating him the day you reported him missing from your flight for which he had picked for which he had picked up his reservation. We'll know more about him soon. It hardly seems possible, Vicky mused, that all those preparations in mis in Mr Eaton Smith's house could have been made after the coins were stolen. That's right. They couldn't have been... That's right. They couldn't have been. Somehow Eaton Smith knew that the gold was coming to Tampa, and when, so he made his preparations well in advance. Our New York people are working on that angle, too. But when we find him and Raymond Duke, I assure you that the FBI will find them. We'll learn about that and a lot of other things, too. There was a third man, Vicky said, the masked pirate I followed into Ubar City. When we get when we get the others, Mr. Quail said, we'll find out about your pirate friend too. Never fear. The curious thing to me, Vicky said, is how the coins were stolen in the first place. According to Mr. Curtin, remember he was on the committee that arranged the exhibition? The packing case didn't show any signs of having been tampered with at all. That puzzled me too. But because it was so puzzling, it gave me an idea that we're working on. An idea? Mr. Quail smiled. Don't worry. 
I'll tell you all about it in the proper time. You've been our number one operative on this case, and I certainly tell you everything after I've found out whether or not I'm right. Mr. Quail patted the gold ship which he had put on his desk. It's amazing, he said. What people will do to get this pretty yellow stuff? Now you go on and enjoy the rest of your vacation. I'll call you if I need you. When Vicky went back downstairs to the main terminal waiting room, a light rain was falling outside. One of those sudden showers so particular to southern Florida that's, that seemed to come out of nowhere and stop all of a sudden as they start. Since she didn't have a raincoat, she decided to wait it out. She strode over to the big, the big plate glass observation window that looked out, of, looked out on the airfield. Then she saw something that made her heart pound. He carried a valise in his hand. Vicky would have known that hurried walk anywhere and the long black coat, and the fact that she was looking at his back made it all the more recognizable. It was the masked pirate of the torchlight parade. She hesitated for Vicky would have known that hurried walk anywhere and the long black coat, and the fact that she was looking at his back made it all the more recognizable. It was the masked pirate of the torchlight parade. She hesitated for a second, debating whether or not she should call John Quail. Then she decided against it. In the time it would take to make a phone call or run upstairs to his office, the man would be gone. She dashed out into the rain. The man strode on, not looking back. He passed the open warehouse door and walked, walked on in the direction of the twin-engine Cessna that stood on the apron beyond it. Roy Olson, ignoring the light rain, was standing beside his plane, fiddling with the door handle. Steve Miller's Beechcraft stood some distance away. As the man passed the warehouse, Joy Watson appeared out of the interior. Hey, Van, he called. Going somewhere? Van, Van, Lash Van Lasher, the warehouse foreman. So he had been the masked pirate. Vicky ducked into the open door and dragged the surprised boy with her. Look, Joey, she said breathlessly, I haven't time to explain, so just do as I say. Call Mr. Quail. He's in his office. Tell him that Van Lasseter is the third man. Have you have you got that, Joey? Tell Mr. Quail that Van Lasher is the third man. But, but, the boy stammered, Joey, Vicky snapped, this is important. Tell Quail that Van is here, and it looks as if he has charted Roy Olson's plane to take him somewhere. I'll do but look, mister, I have to have clearance for a flight to Cuba. I can't just pick up and go on the spur of the moment. All right, Van said. I'll double my offer. Five hundred dollars. Sorry, mister. If I did a thing like that... But look, mister, I have to have clearance for a flight to Cuba. I can't just pick up and go on the spur of the moment. All right, Van said. I'll double my offer. Five hundred dollars. Sorry, mister. If I did a thing like that, I'd lose my license for sure. Look here, Van said. I'm in a tremendous hurry. I missed my plane, and if I'm not in Havana by two o'clock, I'll lose a lot of money. I'll make it a thousand. How about that? Gee, mister, I'd like to take you, Roy said, but I just can't do it for the, any price unless I have legal clearance. All right, Vicky heard. All right, Vicky heard Van say. How long will it take you? Twenty minutes, maybe. A half hour at most. Okay, Van said, but hurry it up. Vicky breathed a deep sigh of relief. The delay would give Quail 
and the airport police plenty of time to get here. Just at that moment, Joy rushed out of the interior of the warehouse. Miss Vicky, he shouted excitedly, I got Mr. Coyle. At the sound of Joy's voice, Van heeled around, where he saw Vicky, his face contorted in a horrible expression of anger. He whipped a pistol from his coat pocket and struck it in Ray Olson's rib. All right, he snared. I'm tired of all this stalling. Get, get in that plane or I'll blow you apart. Roy, sh Roy shook at this sudden turn of events, showing his white, his white face, opened the door and climbed into the ship. Van followed at his heels. Vicky almost panicked. Van was getting away and he had to be stopped. So she looked in the direction of the terminal and there was no sign of Quail and his men. She looked inside the warehouse. By the time she called any other workmen and explained the situation to them, Roy's plane would be airborne, and there would be nothing they could and there would be nothing they could do anyway against a desperate man armed with a gun. These thoughts flashed through her mind in a split second. Then she saw Steve Miller's plane. She made a dash for it. When she reached the beechcraft, Vicky opened the door and scrambled in. By the time she had stumbled up the narrow aisle between the passenger seat and settled herself behind the wheel, she could hear the grinding noise of the Cessna's starter and see its twin propellers slowly turning over. She Quickly, she flicked the ignition and jabbed at the starter buttons, and she did so, and as she did so, the engines of Roy's plane caught with a tremulous roar, and the propellers flashed in a dizzying disk of reflective sunlight and a wild spray of falling rain. At that moment, the motors of the beechcraft started, and Vicky spun the wheel to the taxi. The ship spun the wheel to taxi the ship into Roy's path. With Van Lasher's gun at his back, Roy had no choice but to try and get his plane into the air. He swerved just in time to miss the wing of the beechcraft by inches and headed out crosswise over the landing field. Vicky opened the throttle wide. The beach was more powerful ship than a Cessna, and it answered the throttle like a racehorse hurtling out of a starter gate. Vicky pushed the wheel forward hard to keep the ship from taking off into the air. Again, she intercepted Roy, and again he swerved in time to avoid a collision. Vicky st said a silent prayer that no passenger plane was coming in for a landing, and with all this crazy taxing going on, Certainly by now, the tower would have seen the two planes racing madly across the field, warning off any other ships that might already be in the landing pattern. Roy had straightened out now, and again was heading up the field. Van must indeed be desperate, for he apparently was ordering Roy at gunpoint to make a downwind takeoff. Vicky took, the last diff Vicky took a last-ditch chance and cut in front of the Cessna again. A collision at 70 miles an hour might kill everyone in both ships, but Vicky had only one thought, to keep the other plane from getting into the air. Again, Roy swerved just in time, almost scraping his left wing against the high steel mesh fence that edged the field. Out of the corner of her eye, Vicky saw two airport jeeps dashing across the field in their direction. That would be Quail and the police getting into the chase. Just then, there was a smacking sound in front of her, and a small round hole appeared in the glass window, only inches from her head. Van was using his pistol to scare her away. Once more, Roy tried to. 
Once more, Roy tried to straighten out for a takeoff, and once more, Vicky managed to intercept him and make him swerve away. At the same time, the two jeeps cut at, cut in ahead of him. Roy tried to swerve out of the way of this new menace, and in doing so, the tip of one wing caught the wire to the fence. The Cessna pivoted in a sort of exaggerated loop and fell onto its injured wing and came to a shuddering stop. Roy cut the engines and the whirling propellers slowed down and came to a standstill. At the same time, Vicky cut the motors of the beach and slammed onto the slammed on the brake slammed on the wheel brakes. Instantly, a swarm of uniformed policemen surrounded the Cessna. As Vicky watched her heart pounding wildly, after the excitement of the chase, John Lasher came out of the plane's door and stepped stepped onto the ground, his hands high in the air. In a moment, Roy Olson followed him and walked around to survey his wrecked plane. Vicky saw Mr. Quill walk up to Lasher, say a few words, and weigh him off in the custody of the police. She got up from the pilot seat, walked slowly back down the aisle, all the energy drained from her in these past few harrowing minutes, and climbed down the steps to the ground. The FBI man came up to her, smiling. I might have known it was you in that plane, Thanks to your keen instincts, we caught all the other people in the gold in this gold coin chase. So it just naturally figures that you'd trap Lasher. If I'm not careful, J. J. Edgar Hoover will fire me and give you my job. Vicky was looking sorrowfully at the wreckage of Roy Olson's beautiful plane. John Quayle read the thoughts that were so clearly showing in her face. Don't fret about that plane, Vicky, he said. I'll imagine the insurance company will be glad to take care of the damage. Roy Olsing joined them, just in time to hear Mr. Quill. This is Chapter 15, The Mystery Solved. It was a pleasant Sunday afternoon, two days after Vicky's hair-raising experience with Steve Miller's plane, Steve Miller's airplane. Vicky, this is Chapter 15, The Mystery Solved. It was a pleasant Sunday afternoon. Two days after Vicky's hair-raising experience with Steve Miller's plane, Steve Miller's airplane, Vicky and Mr. Curtin, Nina and Louise, John Quayle and Joey Watson were sitting on the Curtin's broad patio, sipping cool fruit drinks and relaxing. A gentle breeze blew through the flowers and trees that surrounded the big brick house, and Vicky could feel its gentle fingers patting her on the cheek. So if it hadn't been for this young lady, John Quayle was saying as he raised his glass and made a toast to Vicky, I'm afraid all of us would still be in the dark about the theft of the gold coins, and the thieves would be well on their way to parts unknown. But now, thanks to her, all the gang except Atmos Terrell are safely behind bars. Since the old man was an unwilling accomplice, we released him, and for the first time since he came south, He's enjoying himself here in Tampa, waiting to be the key witness at the trial. The newspapers, Mr. Crint said, didn't tell all the details of the story, not enough anyway to satisfy those of us who had a part in it. Frankly, Mr. Quill, that's why I invited you here today. Are you at liberty to give it all to us? I suddenly found myself caught up in the middle of it. First, when our committee opened the crate of scrap metal, and second, when I brought that... 
and second when I brought that gold ship in Havana, but frankly, I'm still at sea. Mr. Coyle took a long sip of his drink. It might be well, he said, if I started at the beginning. He paused for a second to marshal his thoughts, and in his mind, and then went on. It all started out with Eaton Smith, he said. It all started out with Eaton Smith. He had, as we finally found out, a pretty shady career behind him. He had never been arrested, though, and that's why it took our people so long to track down his past. He had become friendly with a certain Max Schmidt in New York. Max didn't have his right at the Numismatic Museum, and when Eaton Smith learned that your committee, Mr. Curtin, had requested the antique gold coin exhibit be sent to Tampa, the two of them went to work on an at the Numismatic Museum, and when Eaton Smith learned that your committee, Mr. Curtin, had requested the antique gold coin exhibit be sent to Tampa, the two of them went to work on an elaborate scheme to steal them. First, they contracted Raimundo, who had, who had, he knew, a businessman in Havana under the name of Raymond Garcia, and who was also not reluctant to steal several hundred thousand dollars worth of gold. Through Duke, he got in touch with Van Lasher. But I thought you said that Van was an old Federal Airlines employee with a gold record, Vicky interrupted. He had been for the past eight years, Vicky, and that's what almost fooled us. After you reported that skull and crossbones warning, we started digging a little deeper into the background of all the employees at the airport here, and we found out that he had several prison terms in Texas ten years ago for larceny. When he got out of prison, he changed his name and went to work for Federal Airlines. So far as we can tell, he had kept his record clean ever since. But Duke, who had been involved in a deal with Lasher some years ago, approached him on the gold coin job. Again, the prospect of all of this easy money was too much for him. He took another sip of his lemonade. It's, it is this kind of case that is always toughest to break. When you are dealing with people who are known criminals, you automatically suspect them when a crime is committed. But all these men had outward, but all these men had an outward cloak of respectability that acted as a protective coloration. But Mr. Terrell, Vicky began, unable to control her curiosity about the old man who had so aroused her sympathy. I'm coming to him, Mr. Quill continued. He had he had been an expert jeweler and goldsmith, as I told you the other day, Vicky, and Eaton Smith ran into him in New York. When this gold coin business came up, the old man immediately came to Eaton Smith's mind. Eaton Smith went to him and told him that he had a job for him in Tampa. The old man was so grateful that he didn't say he, so grateful that he didn't say he hadn't eaten in twenty four hours. That's why he was practically starved when he saw him on the plane. Eaton Smith picked picked him up in a taxi on that morning. Let's see, Thursday, the 6th, on the way to the airport. Terrell made certain inquiries about the job, and Eaton Smith evaded them. Then, when Eaton Smith told him that the two were going to travel on a plane, as if they didn't know each other, the old man began to get suspicious. Being old and sick and hungry, and nervous, he began talking to you. Vicky began talking to you, Vicky, after he was on the plane. Eaton Smith noticed this, 
moved over into the empty seat beside him and told him in no uncertain terms to keep his mouth shut. The grand restaurant thing was an accident. He was trying to tell you that he would be in Ubar City, where he knew Eaton Smith lived. But how in the world did he think Vicky could help him, Louise asked. The grand restaurant thing was an accident. He was trying to tell you that he would be in Ubar City, where he knew Eaton Smith lived. But how in the world did he think Vicky could help him, Louise asked. He wasn't thinking clearly at all. Remember that he was badly frightened and desperate. The FBI man stopped for a moment. Am I keeping this straight enough for you? Everyone nodded silent assent, and he continued. Well, for weeks, Eaton Smith and Raymond Duke have been scheming to steal the coins. Max Smith in the museum in New York had found out that the shipment would be made by air since the closing of the exhibit in New York and the opening of the festival here were the only few days apart. Part of Smith's work at the museum was handling, package, packing, and shipping details. Schmidt made up the exact duplicate of the crate that the gold coins would be shipped in. He loaded his duplicate with a canvas tarp. Being the warehouse foreman, Van's movements were never questioned. Of course, at this point, there was n nothing for anyone to be suspicious about. So when Schmidt in New York advised Duke that the gold coins were coming with a canvas tarp, being the warehouse foreman, Van's movements were never questioned. Of course, at this point, there was n nothing for anyone to be suspicious about. So when Schmidt in New York advised Duke that the gold coins were coming on Federal Flight 17, your ship, Vicky, they were all ready to snatch it. It was only a coincidence that Eaton Smith and Terrell were on the same plane. Since he was the warehouse boss, it seemed natural for Van to offer to sit, sit up with a private detective who had accompanied the shipment and whose main reason for coming to Tampa was to guard the coins while they were on exhibit at the hall. Jones, of course, was glad of the company, and Van had figured out plenty of cute had figured out a pretty cute gimmick. He knew that the all-night guard duty in the warehouse would be a pretty dull affair, so he brought along a thermos jar of coffee, which went, which he went out at regular intervals to refill. He also provided himself with some very mild sleeping pills. Sometimes during the night, he slipped one, one of the pills into Jones' coffee. Since Jones had been up all day, and had a fairly tiring, tiring plane trip, too. The mild pills was just enough to put him into a sound sleep and give Van a chance to switch the crates. Smith had sent him several duplicate labels from the museum in New York, so Van soaked the original labels off each crate with a solvent solution and put the label addressed to Duke on the crate of gold and the label addressed to the festival committee on the crate of junk. Since the solvent was thoroughly dried by morning, there was no way to tell it that a change had ever been made. Then he switched the bills of landing, covered up the genuine crate with the canvas, and that was all there was to it. When it was all shipshape, he woke up the detective and he woke the detective up, and so far as Jones knew, he had only slipped off for a moment into a brief nap. The bit about the prowler, Joy was staged by Van to indicate that someone had been snooping around. It was just by chance that he used your flashlight, 
You had left it on top of your locker, and Van happened to see it. And so, Mr. Curtin said, the theft was accomplished by the simple device of Van Lasher switching the crates. That's right, Mr. Quill said. It was as simple as that. The next morning, at the same time, the fake crate was delivered to your committee. The crate containing the gold was delivered to Raymond Duke. Naturally, we checked on all the deliveries made that morning, but Duke showed our man the bill of landing for a shipment of perfume, and we had no reason to doubt it. At that moment, Mrs. Tucker interrupted with a plate of sandwiches and a fresh pitcher of lemonade. Mr. Quayle turned his attention briefly from the gold coins to the food. Being a bachelor, he said to the housekeeper, I don't often get to eat chicken sandwiches like these. He helped himself to another one. She sit, As she sipped on her lemonade, Vicky couldn't get her mind off the old man who had been who had been the starting point of the whole case so far as she was concerned. How, she asked, did Duke and Eaton Smith get Mr. Turrell to work for them after he had found out what, what was going on? By another simple method, the FBI man replied, they threatened to kill him if he made a false move. But when I saw him in Uber City and in the art supply store, no one was with him, Vicky said, so he couldn't have been completely a prisoner. Why couldn't he have gone to the police? They'd have protected him. They had one other weapon, Mr. Quayle said. It appears that the old man has a grandson in New York. Terrell was unable to support him, and the boy was in a chari charitable institution. They threatened to hurt the boy if Terrell went to the police. Naturally, the Tampa police would have gotten in touch with the New York forces to assure the boy's protection, but the old man was scared out of his wits and wasn't thinking straight. That's why he was so frightened when you saw him that day in front of the Duke's house. But he did try to get away on the plane to New York, Vicky reminded him. There's no accounting for what people will do when they get panicky, Mr. Quayle said. He saw you in the store that day, and the idea of running away on your ship suddenly occurred to him. He had come to look on he had come to look on you as his friend, Vicky, since you were the only person who had acted friendly towards him. He had seen Eaton Smith's air travel credit card lying on his desk, so having no money, he tried to use it to pay for his ticket. When he picked it up at the airport, naturally the federal people called Eaton Smith, and he and Duke drove to the airport and found the old man, forced him into the car, and took him back to Uvar City. He lost his violin case in the struggle. The, Mr. the FBI man took a long sip of his lemonade, I'm certainly doing a lot of talking, he said. If you stop now, Louise said pertly, I'll take away that tray of chicken sandwiches. In that case, Quill reached for another sandwich. Now, where was I? What I don't understand, Mr. Curtin said, is how that peddler in Havana happened to have the gold, the solid gold ship, gold ship coins he sold to us. We got him too, Quill said, but let me go back a little. Eaton Smith was a very ingenious idea, had a very ingenious idea about shipping the gold out of the country. He brought up several crates of those little festival souvenirs on the pretext of giving them to his customers. You saw some of them at his house, Vicky. He forced Terrell to melt down the coins and cast if the Cuban custom people bothered to open the crates at all. Don't forget that Raymond Garcia was constantly shipping things in and out of Havana 
they would have seen the souvenirs on the top and passed. If the Cuban custom people bothered to open the crates at all, don't forget that Raymond Garcia was constantly shipping things in and out of Havana. They would have seen the souvenirs on the top and passed the shipment. Naturally, they would have no reason to suspect the crates held anything more valuable than cheap novelties. And of course it worked. Now for the man who sold you the gold ship in Havana, he was a handyman who worked at odd times around Duke's place. When Duke was removing the gold from the crate of souvenirs, he was careless to let the fellow get a good look at one. He recognized it for what it was, and when Duke's back was turned for a moment, slipped it into his pocket. And thereby, Mr. Curtin volunteered, providing us with one piece of concrete evidence that solved the mystery. Don't you mean solid gold evidence, Daddy? Nina teased. It is a good thing we went to the thieves' market that afternoon, Vicky remarked. No, Quail corrected her. It's a good thing that you have all the instincts and the quick mind of a good detective, Vicky. You were smart enough to put all the odds and ends of evidence together and come up with the right answer. Not everyone has that talent. Me, for instance, Mr. Curtin laughed. I saw the same things Vicky did, and they didn't mean a thing to me. Now there was nothing in the world to connect Raymond Duke and Eaton Smith in any way with that gold shipment except Van Lasher. And that's where you come in, Joey. You mean that offer? You mean that offer of a job Duke made me? That's right. The three of them could never afford to be seen together. They were even afraid to use the telephone, lest a message somehow be intercepted when Van was out of the warehouse. But obviously they had to keep in touch, since you were always around the warehouse with Van. The idea was to use you as a messenger boy. They figured you needed the money badly, enough to do as you were told, and that they could believe any cock and bull story Van cooked up to explain the need of secrecy. Of course, it was every. Of course, if everything went right, there was no reason for you or anyone else to connect either of them with the missing gold. But you turned them down, and they were afraid to approach anyone else. So Van used the cover of the torchlight parade in Upper City, where almost everyone in costume, and most people were masked, to meet his confederates. To meet his confederates. That's why he ran away when he recognized you, Vicky, and lost himself in the crowd. And that's why Duke went after you, to hold you up by some pretext, or wait until Van could get away. Van sending you that threatening note was another dumb play. He thought it might frighten you into keeping quiet. That proves he doesn't know Vicky very well, Mr. Curtin said. Again, you used your detective's intuition when you saw Van walking across the airfield toward Olsen's plane and recognized him as the pirate. If you hadn't followed him, Olsen would have gotten his clearance papers and taken Van to Cuba as a matter of course. But why was Van running away in such a hurry? Well, up to that morning, everything had gone according to plan. Eaton Smith and Duke, having the shipment, having shipped all the gold to Cuba, went themselves and took the old man with them for safekeeping. They planned to stay there under cover until they could make arrangements to dispose of the gold, possibly in South America. Then they would simply ditch the old man and fade away. Van was completely in the clear up to that point, 
So the plan was for him to stay here, working at his job until everything happened. Van saw me meet you at the plane Friday morning and take you to my office. Since he knew the plane was inbound from Havana, he began to smell a rat. He followed us upstairs and saw that my secretary was away from her desk. Van saw me meet you at the plane Friday morning and take you to my office. Since he knew the plane was inbound from Havana, Vicky suggested. That's true, but he figured he was taking a worse one if he didn't find out what we were up to. He saw the gold ship model on my desk, and he knew the jig was up, so he hurried to his rooming house. That's true, but he figured he was taking a worse one if he didn't find out what we were up to. He saw the gold ship model on my desk, and he knew the jig was up, so he hurried to his rooming house, which is just on the edge of the field, picked up some money that Eaton Smith had given him in advance for emergencies, grabbed his raincoat and hat, and hurried over to make a quick deal with Roy to fly him to Cuba. When he saw you had followed him, he got panicky and pulled his gun. You know the rest of the story. The FBI, the FBI man drained his last, drained the last of his lemonade. It's been quite a case, he said. Just one thing, Mr. Curtin said. How did you locate Duke and Eaton Smith so fast? Quayle smiled. When Lasher saw that we finally had him, he told us the whole story from the beginning including where we could pick up Eaton, Eaton Smith, Duke, and old Mr. Terrell. That poor old man, Vicky said. This whole thing has to be terrible for him. On the contrary, Quill said, it probably will turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to him. What? Vicky could hardly believe what she was hearing. This Florida climate was just what he needed, Quill said. Even with that, even with what he's been going through, his health has improved considerably in the few days he's been down here. A man with his skills as a jeweler shouldn't have any trouble finding work in Tampa. He can bring his grandson down and start living a normal life again. Vicky's eyes sparkled. Oh, I'm so glad for him. So very glad. The FBI agent rose to go. Miss Vicky Barr, he said, it's been a pleasure working with you. I've, I've said it before and I say it again. You're a darn good detective. Vicky blushed in spite of herself. This crime was much worse than an ordinary theft, Quill said. Those ancient gold coins were a living part of history. They were irreplaceable and priceless. Those men, those men who stole them and destroyed them all destroyed all but the handful we found in Eaton Smith's house did a terrible thing. The jury and the judge will show them no mercy. It's fortunate I'm speaking only in a comparative sense, of course. I don't think you'll find this altogether worthless, Vicky. From his pocket, he took a little gold ship that Vicky had first seen in the thieves' market. For you, I'm speaking only in a comparative sense, of course. I don't think you'll find this altogether worthless, Vicky. From his pocket, he took a little gold ship that Vicky had first seen in the thieves' market. For your invaluable help in solving the case, the insurance company wants you to have this as a reward. He reached over and put the ship model in Vicky's hand. The polished gold glistened in the afternoon sun. If I ever have another case as perplexing as this one, I may call on your may call on you for help, Vicky. You're a darn good detective.